The Letter, written and directed by Daniel Ruiz Tyson, Episode One. My latte arrives in its tall glass. I stir my coffee, and then I stir it again. I'm prone to the overstirring. This often annoys your regulars, but hearing the tall spoon knock against the glass transports me back to my childhood just down the road from here. I grew up in a house that was always full of coffee. My dad used to overstir his coffee too. In his glass, always in a glass. That's the best way to drink coffee. I could still hear Dad stirring his coffee and placing his glass back on its glass saucer. If there was a soundtrack to my childhood, it was that and the fighting. I come to the cafe to you because my life was turned upside down a long time ago, and in you I found somewhere I could call home. In this itinerant decade, where girlfriends came and went like Doctor Who's, each regeneration coming with a more sizable skull that I tend to prize and more buxom and toothier than their predecessor. You have been the enduring relationship of my life. The one thing I allow to stay. From the late 90s onwards, with 27,000 Portuguese and Madeiran immigrants flooding into South Lambeth in southwest London, a plethora of Portuguese cafes sprung up in South Lambeth Road, mirroring the growth of 1870s Deadwood as it grew from camp to town, a rough and rowdy settlement that at times seemed to be the blueprint for what was happening in South Lambeth Road 130 years later. The media, always keen on their labels, predictably tagged this part of SW8 Little Portugal. No one round here calls it that, thankfully. But this really does feel like another world. One of coffee, thick buttered toast, custard tarts, sagris beer, toothpicks and smoking. Lots of smoking. There are few Portuguese that don't smoke. Where were these people when the nicotine Superman ads were going out in the 70s and 80s? And it's a habit their kids are set on continuing. There's more smoking on these streets than there is on the average episode of Mad Men. It's a world, however, that slowly finds itself threatened by the redevelopment of neighbouring Vauxhall and Nine Elms that promises to push the working class further out. But for now, South Lambeth Road holds out like the village in Asterix against the Romans, the Galaus, as you Portuguese call the lattes, your own magic potion as you face off the fat businessmen circling SW8-like vultures. The locals live their life on the streets, as the Mediterraneans are wont to do in their homelands. Regardless of the weather, they are out there, unconcerned by their proximity to discarded chicken bones and saliva. Given the mass unemployment and general loitering around here, I don't know what physical exertions could possibly leave the locals needing to spit so much. And of course there's the dog mess, a particular bone of contention for me. Shops and homes find themselves circled by dog muck. How is this different, I ask myself, to any scene from the Middle Ages? SW8 is in urgent need of a Pied Piper to come and lure all the dogs away so we can, in maybe 20 years' time, have clean streets. Future generations will ask SW8's older residents, but did you really let dogs foul your streets? And it is here, in amongst this mess and noise, that I found you. The first of these Portuguese cafes, the heart of this community. Without you, without your coffee and your heavily buttered Portuguese toast, many of us wouldn't know how to start our days. You are what a cafe should be. Good coffee shouldn't be a big deal. 
It shouldn't be expensive. It doesn't need to come in fancy oversized cups embossed with the chain's logo or come in a mug. You don't make us ask for different sizes in Italian. You don't make us sit on some fancy sofa to drink the stuff. And you don't ask us to pay over two pounds. If I grab a takeaway from you, you don't have your waiters write my name on your polystyrene cups in that over-familiar way the big high street chains do. An unremitting spate of bereavements and personal disasters made the last few years impossible, and you became more important to me than ever. I came in here right before the funerals. My dad, Lopez, my uncles. It is here where I absorbed all the abrupt losses and disappearances. It is in here where I failed to save my last relationship in Christmas 2010 with Miss Latin America. When the tears failed to come, I thought it was because I was okay. I delivered the eulogies in front of family and friends, able somehow to separate myself from what was unfolding before me, and then continued with my life as normal until everything came to a shuddering halt. Something happened at the end of 2010. I had an epiphany. I was living in the hotel. Christmas lights had been fixed on my balcony as early as October, and for two months their neon lights had illuminated room 11, keeping me awake. I had to fashion an eye mask from the worn away gusset of an old pair of pants in order to sleep. It was the first Monday in December, and waking up early, I found I had no inclination to move. I just lay in bed for hours, suddenly and rather painfully realising I needed to change. My life up to that point had failed. In spite of the underwear eye mask hybrid that I was wearing, I had never before seen my life with such clarity. The only thing that had kept changing for a long time was my nose and that was the rhinoplasty, but I knew now I had no choice but to change. I'd hoped that change would take place somewhere new. Your hold on me though is so great, I even moved next door in 2010. Ironically, the cost of that flat in the alleyway just 20 seconds from your door meant I could barely afford to come here for six months. I got an idea during that period of what might happen to my life if I stopped coming to the cafe. In 2011, knowing I needed a fresh start after living in that hotel for almost half a year, I still allowed you to dictate where I lived when I looked for my next flat. I had lost everything, but I couldn't lose you. Gradually I allowed myself to be pulled back to my old haunts, my dreams of a new life, somewhere I could forge new memories, being cast aside in favour of proximity to the lattes. You may have noticed that after 12 years, I do still lean towards the more pretentious latte pronunciation, asking for the latte rather than the latte. It's too late to change it. No one here would buy it. Maybe I'd need to disappear first, come back in a year, by which time your staff might have forgotten I used to go with a latte and I could bring my own pronunciation into line with that of the waiters. Latte. 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 Latte? Oh, come on. I mean, how difficult can it be? My loyalty to you is as remarkable as my ability to nurse one of your lattes. The only reason you tolerate me here is because I always sit at the table by the loose, the table nobody wants. If I nurse my lattes at any other table, I don't think you'd welcome me here. Your disregard for this spot is all too clear. One of the table legs is wobbly, and I usually have to wipe down the table myself. You know, I once took a peanut from a near-empty bowl of peanuts on an adjacent table that had yet to be cleared, and left it right on the corner of the floor here to see if it got swept up. I just wanted to confirm the disregard there is for this corner among your staff. The strange thing was, after a few days, another peanut appeared alongside it, and the day after that. 
This went on for nearly three weeks until I counted at least 20 peanuts. I don't know what happened there. In 2010, there was a girl in my life. She had the typically oversized skull I frequently find myself drawn to, the slightest of overbites and a gym-honed body that concerned me because I worried if she ever lost her job, she'd look to me to cover her monthly gym fees to maintain it. Would it have been in my interest to sustain a physique that always turned heads wherever we went? Trying to steer our stormy relationship towards calmer waters was, however, preferable to confronting my grief. But once I made my opposition clear to her intention to cut her hair like Rihanna, my card had been marked. You work your weight as hard, 12-hour shifts, six days a week. These guys whose English rarely improves owing to this Mediterranean bubble they exist in are away from home for so long, it'd be easy for their partners to have affairs. I call your youngest waiter another one, because that's all the English he knows after two and a half years in South Lambeth. Another one loves a handshake, doling out big easy smiles that expose an upper left stunted canine tooth as he presses the flesh. He saw very early on that I am not the most approachable of guys. Mine is an emotionally inadequate face further constrained by the multiple rhinoplasties of the mid-noughties, every bit as numb as my heart these days. I am essentially a mourner trapped in a failing writer's body with a limited range of facial expressions that come into their own at funerals. Another one unsettled me with how relentless his table service was when he first started here, asking me every 15 minutes, regardless of how far into my coffee I was, whether I wanted another one. He would spirit lattes away before they were even finished, cutting my coffee nursing times down from an hour to as little as 43 minutes at one stage. Eventually, I had to start obscuring my tall glasses with the napkin holders, which did ruffle him, and gradually I was able to re-establish my hour-long period with each coffee. Hey, welcome back. If you've just tuned in, I have with me this week underachieving writer and podcaster Daniel Ruiz Tizon, the South London Latte Ponce. Daniel, I want to talk to you about this young waiter, another one, big on handshakes, but you didn't want the handshake. When you see each other every day, you know, I don't think there's a need for such formalities. You shake the same person's hand every day, it feels devalued. So for you, the handshake should be an event. Yeah, I think so. You know, when I, when I give somebody my hand, I don't just want to be going through the motions. And so many of the cafe's customers emerge from the loos without washing their hands. You know this how? I'm right by the loos. I never hear the taps or the dryers going off. They go to the loo, they come out, they eat, and then, with no hand-washing featuring at all in this sequence of events, they hand over their money to the waiters who then serve the few of us who do wash our hands. It's a germ carousel. That's what it is. Honestly, when I wash my hands in there, I feel like I'm not just washing my own hands, but the hands of an entire community, you know? But I was also acutely aware that the more established waiters who knew how reserved I was might be observing how another one and I might interact. In all the time you've been going to the cafe, have you engaged with these other waiters? No, that's it. I, I didn't want to put their noses out of joint by suddenly connecting with this new guy in a way I hadn't with them. I mean, what if he just left all of a sudden? Like the waitress. The young Spanish waitress you had last summer changed things, briefly. The cafe had never had a waitress before. She was tall, rangy, with a husky voice, speaking with a heavy accent, rolling her R's as all Spaniards do. Her hair always tied back into a severe ponytail, makeup refreshingly kept to a minimum. 
She was short-sighted but refused to wear her glasses most of the time, giving her an endearing squint whenever she tried to see which tables might need serving. No one quite knew how to behave. The men all fancied her. I probably did too. The women were frosty towards her. Some men even stopped bringing in their partners as all of a sudden a long queue of suitors formed. Some began to dress better. Others started washing their hands after using the loos. The arrival of a beautiful woman was what it took for that to happen, while the rest would at least punch in the hand dryer on their way past the saloon doors for effect, coming out with hands that not even an air blade could dry that quickly. A few even stopped using the loos altogether. I remember for a few months I would try to talk to him like I would talk to the other customers, but it was never easy. When I found out he was Spanish, I was surprised because in my country we are not close like that. He always looked tired, stressed. I would tell him that. I saw him once take a peanut and put it on the floor behind his seat. When he next came in, I would see him looking at the peanut which hadn't been removed and shaking his head. I told the other waiters. They figured he had put the peanut there himself to test if his corner was cleaned. So for a joke, the waiters would every day place an extra peanut next to the peanut he had put there until it got to about 20 peanuts in that corner. (laughs) He would look at the peanuts and then look at us, trying to see if we knew something. It was very funny. Every night she left with her big headphones on with the inevitable for a southern European cigarette in her mouth, a beautiful girl in a city foreign to her, enjoying life in my own city in a way I wasn't able to myself, completely unaware of the impact she was having on the cafe. Every night she left, something left the cafe too. I knew it couldn't last, and I didn't want it to. She was a distraction. I needed you to get back to being what you'd always been for me, and I was relieved when she left. Your toilets, located just the other side of the saloon doors behind me, really are bizarre. Installed during the refurbishment of 04, a urinal and toilet bowl were somewhat curiously placed alongside each other in the same tiny men's cubicle. What was the thinking behind such a cubicle? I mean, who is going to start at the urinal and then midstream transfer over to the bowl? All you're doing is creating indecision in there. The ventilation itself is non-existent. Sometimes I'm surprised health and safety haven't shut you down. You may as well bring the loos right out and place them in the dining area itself. It would hardly make things worse. Your four-week closure back in 2004 for the refurbishment responsible for the bizarre cubicle killed me. I didn't know what to do or where to go. Similarly, the two weeks you were closed in the summer in 2012 left me a little lost. Many regulars descended on the other rival cafes. I felt sorry for those cafes flooded with the refugees. They'd have known this sudden influx of customers were yours and that they had little hope of hanging on to them, regardless of how good their food and coffee might be. I didn't want to be seen having any other coffee around here. I'm nothing if not loyal. I was still grieving when I eventually came in through your door that first time. It was a Sunday, August 2001. I came in with my old flatmate, at his behest, as we searched for somewhere to stop, whilst we waited to collect deposits from the landlord whose flat we'd vacated the day before. My mum had been gone for 18 months, while my dad would disappear almost a year to the day. The cafe was certainly a big improvement on the gloomy junk shop run by two men that used to sit on this corner of South Lambeth Road. For my part, I was disappointed with myself that my curiosity never took me in earlier. 
I would remember my dad's words all those years earlier in Green Park about how tough life can get in a city like ours. Everyone's in a hurry, he said. It's important to always make time for a coffee and just think, or not think, but make time. The more I passed you on my way to work, the more I started to feel like you might be that place. So much so that the fear I might be disappointed by you kept me away. You weren't the first, I have to be honest with you. For six years I remained steadfast to a cafe right by Platform 9 in Victoria Station. Lopez and I would sit in there for hours on end after college, or in and around the jobs we were failing to hold down. We'd feast on almond croissants, a little smug that we discovered the world of cappuccinos and lattes, long before they became fashionable, drinking three or four cups on fantastic high stalls that offered the most fantastic lumbar support, until we were all coffeed out. The coffee eventually became too bad in there, or maybe my palate had evolved. It was only bad coffee that could animate a face too often devoid of any emotion, and the dissatisfied, scrunched-up expression I eventually started pulling with some regularity in the station cafe irked my late 90s ex no end. By 2001, I'd shed both the old cafe and late 90s ex. In your letter to the cafe, you write about losing yourself in all the different cultures and languages, the Portuguese, the North Africans. You also get the odd Spaniards left over from the influx of the uh, 60s and 70s. And the Spanish, yes. All easily slighted characters full of over-the-top gesticulations that remind you of your earliest years growing up in Stockwell in a road full of immigrants, where you write, it was only us children who could speak proper English. In here, I reconnect with my old life. The reconnection is important to you. I think it's important to remember who you are or what you were. As I lost the people close to me, I, I, you know, I felt I was losing sight of whom I was. But from the cafe, I can just about access that. Access what? Who you are or who you were? I think I'd settle for either. The gods may have kissed your coffee but I don't think your food's much to write home about. Of your best dishes, I remain convinced that I'm too low-key for the flaming chorizo, made with pork fat, wine, paprika and salt, and delivered still alight. It's too flamboyant, and there's no clear guidance that comes with it. At what point can you start eating it? Do you have to blow the flame out yourself? The flaming chorizo would also turn a few heads were I to order it. Suddenly, people would notice me. It'd be like that moment in American Gangster, where Denzel Washington, up to that point inconspicuous, operating quietly and dressing conservatively, suddenly turns up at the alley Frazier fight of the century in Madison Square Garden, sporting a gaudy chinchilla coat and hat given to him by his wife. It was the outfit that brought him to the attention of the police. Over the last few years, the cafe has become a solitary experience for you. Have you thought about making friends with any of the regulars? Not at all. You you have to make friends somewhere. What's wrong with making them at the cafe? It would change what the cafe is for me. I want to take you back for a moment to Christmas 2010. Your last night in the hotel. You're in the cafe till late, writing to your then-girlfriend in a doomed attempt to save the relationship. Another regular sees you and, out of concern, asks if you're okay. From there, a 12-minute conversation ensues. Now, how did you feel about that? I was worried. I was worried. This guy introduced me to his wife that night. She was a, she was a big drinker. If I'd become friends with them, I'd have been buying two drinks for everyone. They were buying me. Uh. I don't drink, so I'd just be having coffee. They'd be hitting me with their Sagres beer orders. 
I'm a single guy on a low salary. I didn't even have a salary that night. I had to make sure nothing came of that conversation. Ah, I see. From this table, I get a chance to study my favourite regulars. People I see more often than I see friends and family. Among them are the head man of SW8, a gay 40-something man in what must be London's biggest gay community, noted for a curiously large and misshapen head that if he were a woman, would be too big for even me to consider dating. He was lost to the cafe for a while though at the back end of 2011, following an incident on a scorching hot flip-flop heavy night that bizarrely fell in October. Both customers and the dog stalls were baking in the sun. The evening was ruined by the notorious drunken Somali of Wandsworth Road, which runs parallel to South Lambeth Road, crossing over onto this side of SW8. The Somali was abusing everyone, real invective pouring through a massive overbite. I delayed my exit for fear he'd single out the ridiculous slim-fit jeans LA had persuaded me to buy, which had understandably horrified many of my friends, and confirmed, perhaps, that I was indeed having a midlife crisis. My concerns that I might be abused meant you got three lattes out of me that night, and I was only halfway through the last one when the drunken Somali singled out the headman of SW8 for special abuse, screaming at him, Your head is so big. The headman never quite recovered. The Somali had said what we all knew, but the headman made it worse by calling the police. I never understood that. The police would have sought to establish just what was said to him. And that would have led to the headman just drawing further attention to his oversized skull. Then there is cosmetically enhanced mum, whose pencil-thin figure and wardrobe suggest she modelled in her younger days, and her only child, Molly Coddle Boy. They are close, too close. He is the boy who gets everything he wants, as does his mum, whose attractive long witch-like face has, over the last year or so, undergone a number of surgical improvements paid for her by her husband. Every few months, she shows up at the cafe looking ever less natural. She can barely close her mouth. You could post a small letter through the permagrin she's now sporting. What I admire, though, is the way she staggers her appearances pre-surgery so we all become accustomed to not seeing her. And then she disappears for weeks on end, before returning, often with a tan, to create the illusion she's simply been on holiday. And a half-different face. It is brilliantly thought out. By the time she returns, we're so used to not seeing her, we've forgotten what her last face looked like. The 40-something Portuguese chinfisher couple are my favourites. They fascinate me because it is unusual that two people with dimpled chins would get together. According to Wikipedia, A chinfisher is formed as a result of the incomplete fusion of the left and right halves of the jawbone. I guess the coming together of clefts secured the next generation of dimpled jaws. Were they so enamoured by their fishes, they only wanted kids with grooved chins? Their resulting teenage boy has a fisher, so for now at least, the cleft dynamic continues. I want to talk to you about a regular in the cafe, an elderly Englishman, late 70s perhaps, whom you call Future Me. Yeah. You see him, much like you, struggling to fill his days, jumping from one bus to another on his free oyster card, and you write... It was when I started seeing his distinctive stooped figure aimlessly walking the same Stockwell back streets that I myself was walking hours after leaving the cafe, lost and beleaguered, that I realized future me's daily schedule, like my own, wasn't exactly packed. You worry this is how you're going to see out your days. 
I do. It's not that I even fear becoming him. I may already be him. Our lives don't feel that much different. Do you think he recognizes in you what you see in him? Maybe. Maybe he sees me and just thinks I'm a younger, worse-dressed version of him. You may have noticed that the friend I used to come in here with for years is no longer seen necking black coffees. His umbrella hanging off the back of this chair opposite me, if there was even the slightest hint of rain. And you can probably remember the girl I used to sit here with. Though never when my friend was here. L.A. and Lopez never met. Yet both sat here. Both vanished from my life, just 18 months apart. In 2011, I just sat here at the toilet table, waiting for the day to come when I knew for certain that I was no longer in love with L.A. I was slow, detached. It reminded me a little of the Days Go By video by Dirty Vegas. It tells the story of a dancer who once a year shows up outside Cronies, a famous sandwich shop in East Los Angeles, and just dances all day from sunrise to sunset in the hope of bringing back a lost love who left him because he couldn't stop dancing. I still don't quite understand why he thought that by popping, locking, breakdancing and throwing in the robot, he could win her back given the reason she left him in the first place was because of the dancing. But the video struck a chord with me because he was at the one place this woman always knew he would be at on a certain day. If she wanted to get him back, she knew where he was. And in the end, if I remember rightly, she does show up at Cronies. LA knew she could find me here. And unlike that dancer who's only outside the sandwich shop on just one day of the year, I was here every day. But she never came. The cafe always felt right for me. Until now. From my table I can see everything. I used to tell myself I was watching the world go by. And I was. But now I'm watching the world pass me by. There's a difference. Sometimes I feel like I just sit here, marking time. A jaded man waiting to escape the past and fall in love again. Or at least meet someone I can start a life with and halve my utility bills. I know I'll never find another relationship like this elsewhere. I need to see new streets though, new people. I need to create new memories, push on with my life. I still have dreams. I'm still ambitious. It's not you, it's me. No, it is you. It's both of us. I need to leave you, but I don't know how. I mean, where would I go? Would I just start going from one cafe to another, rotating them like the tiresome guest host format pioneered by Have I Got News For You in the wake of Angus Deaton's dismissal from the show over a decade ago? I don't know. I need to think this through. I just need you to know the day this all finishes, I will never forget what you did for me. You were the place my dad told me I needed to find as we walked through Green Park almost 24 years ago. You have been the place where I could order myself a coffee, step back and think, or not think. I was the man that sat in the corner that never let you know me. From the bottom of my iced over heart, thank you. In The Letter, Inner US Talk Show host was played by Pippa Winslow. The Waitress was played by Sarah Summeray, with Daniel Ruiz-Tyson as himself. The music is by Ignacio Lozano.
For more news on the letter, visit the blog, theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com. Thank <laughs> you.